The sermon comes this morning from Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Genesis 1 and verse 26. I'll read this passage in a moment, um, and then afterwards we will pray, as is our custom. Um, but I do want to let you know uh, that today, if I'm correct, is uh, the first Sunday that uh, Pastor John will be preaching at um, New Covenant Fellowship in, in Massachusetts. And I think we would do well to pray for our brother who's uh, gone on and heard God's call. Um, I'll also let you know that uh, some of you know Harrison Otis, who is a Patrick Henry student uh, who's been worshiping with us. Uh, he is back up in Maine interning at his church, and tonight will be the first time that he uh, preaches God's word. And uh, Harrison uh, is actually um, helping in the service this morning, and he said that they would be praying for us this morning. And so I think we would do well to pray for our brother Harrison as well. And so I direct your attention now to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Hear now the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let us pray together. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this time this morning that we can gather together as your people and sit shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We do so, as we often testify, because we love you. And I hope and trust that it's not duty that brings us here or a sense of obligation, but it's a delight in the gospel and what Christ has done for us, what you have done for us, Father. And so now uh, we come to, I think, especially this morning, a heavy subject as we look at your word in light of our culture and the current understanding of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and the redefinition that we see around us. I pray that you would help us to understand your will and your plan, that we would cherish it and delight in it, that we would understand that gender is not something that that we are to overcome, but something that we are to affirm and to rejoice and to thank you for your very good plan. I pray that you would help us to approach this issue um, well. I feel like many of our brothers and sisters, Father, have often um, dealt with these issues with a lack of sensitivity and almost forgetting the gospel in the midst of considering these things. So please, will you help us as we affirm your plan this morning, at the same time remind us of your amazing grace that saved wretches like us, that we would not see those who would advocate a different worldview as our enemies, but as the mission field, as our neighbors whom we are called to love. And so please help us to be gracious as we at the same time affirm our convictions. We do want to pray for our brother John. We thank you for the gifts that you have given him and the ministry that he gave us for three years and now the ministry that he will give to New Covenant. We ask that you would help him, Father, to preach your word well with clarity, great insight, a zeal, and a joy. And we pray for our brother Harrison, who I trust uh, this evening when he preaches during the evening service will experience a bit of trepidation as the first time to stand before God's people and authoritatively proclaim your word. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, walk with him, that he would know of your spirit's power and presence in his life, and that you would, Father, bless his ministry, that grapefruit would come not only in his life, but those that will sit under his teaching. So please help him, our brother. We thank you for your word. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Steinmetz was known to be a mechanical genius and happened to be a friend of Henry Ford. Now, Steinmetz was legendary. He was said that he could build a motor in his mind, and if it, the motor broke, he could fix it in his mind. And so when he would actually develop a, a motor of some sort, it would work. It would run with absolute precision. Well, there was one day in, one, in which one of Steinmetz's uh, creations there in the Ford Motor Company broke. The assembly line broke down. And none of Ford's men could fix the assembly plant, this, this, this machine. And so Henry Ford called his friend Steinmetz. He came over and, and tinkered for a few minutes through the switch 
and everything was working back in order. A few days later, Ford received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. Ford wrote back to his friend, Charlie, don't you think your bill is a little high for just a little tinkering? And so Steinmetz revised his bill. He sent back a new one, this one saying tinkering $10. Knowing where to tinker, (laughs) $9,990. You see, the creator knows his creation. He knows it better than anyone. What Steinmetz created, he knew exactly what it needed. And as you and I have discovered in our study of Genesis, that we too have a creator. We call him God. He has made us. And he as our creator knows us better than we know ourselves. And here we see in this passage, especially in verse 27, that he has not only made us, but he has made us different from one another. Specifically, he has made us as men and women. He has created gender. You notice this in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And the reason why we even have to kind of pause for a Sunday and address this reality, which seems to be so evident to you and I, is that many in our culture, in fact, the majority of our culture, I believe, has rejected this gift that we call gender. It has been redefined and continues to be in a number of ways. And so this week, perhaps as early as tomorrow, the Supreme Court of the United States We'll decide whether the federal government can legally define marriage as the union of one man and one woman. The majority of our fellow Americans would say that that definition should not hold. For the first time in, in perhaps the history of this nation, the majority of our fellow citizens believe that marriage should be broadened to also take into account the union of two individuals of the same sex. The world is changing. The Boy Scouts of America recently, despite court rulings in their favor last month, have for the first time changed their policy to invite openly homosexual scouts to join their scout troop. This just mirroring a number of laws that have recently been passed, if you just consider the month of May, last month, for instance. On May 21st, the British House of Commons legalized, at least in their house, homosexual marriage by a vote of 70% in favor. Three days earlier in France, on May 18th, France legalized homosexual marriage. Four days before that, Brazil Brazil legalized homosexual marriage. On that same day, Minnesota legalized homosexual marriage. On May 7th, Delaware legalized homosexual marriage. On May 2nd, Rhode Island legalized homosexual marriage. It seems to me that almost every assumption about the family that we once took for granted, perhaps just a couple decades ago, have now been tossed aside. Everything's changed. Our understanding of children and child rearing, our understanding of dating and marriage, monogamy and divorce, sex and shame, the roles of men and women have all changed. One pastor, I think, rightly says, if you were to go back 100 years from now and describe the culture in which you live in today, they simply would not have believed it. Today in our land, there's a tidal wave of homosexuality, an epidemic of divorce, a plummeting rate of marriage, a growth of promiscuity, illegitimate children, the lengthening of adolescence, the changing definition of marriage, and the rise of great emotional stress and confusion that comes from these realities. Unfortunately, the church has not been spared. As you well know, there are gender roles that are changing even within the church. It's not uncommon now to have a woman serve as a pastor in a church, that which would have been unspeakable some 40 or 50 years ago. Moreover, many churches are now um, inviting um, homosexuals to marry with even in their auditoriums and their buildings. And this change is, is not just affecting the issue of marriage. In fact, the, the root issue, the issue of gender is being impacted. Um, last night, Allegra and I, in fact, were watching uh, CNN and uh, an Anderson Cooper special, which a former Navy SEAL now would like to be regarded as a woman. Uh, He's a transgender um, man who now says he is a woman. He has selected his gender or her gender and has chosen a new one, going from a man to a woman. We see this happening throughout our nation. In fact, in New York City, you can walk into um, the county court office and you could change your gender on your birth certificate. But just by asking, I'm no longer a man, please consider me to be a woman or vice versa. 
This is not just happening with adults. This is impacting children as well. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, I quote, Park Day School is throwing out gender boundaries. Teachers have stopped asking children to line up according to sex when walking from, to and from class. They now let boys, and gr- boys play girls and girls play boys in skits. And there's a unisex bathroom. Park Day's gender-neutral metamorphosis happened over the past few years as applications trickled in for kindergartners who do not fit on either side of the gender line. One girl enrolled as a boy, and there were other children who didn't dress or act in gender-typical ways. You see, the idea that these people, perhaps well-meaning people, are doing is that we, don't, we ought to let people decide their gender that we ought not to impose upon them the gender that maybe their physical anatomy would, would demand, but that is up for them to decide. And so Tom Little, the director of this school, explained that teachers and his school are taught gender-neutral vocabulary. We are careful not to create a situation where students are boxed in. We allow them to move back and forth until something feels right. Unfortunately, it's not only impacted our culture and the church and even children, but even God himself has not been spared uh, for many Christians today in America. To claim that God is a male or even Jesus is a male is offensive. The largest Presbyterian church in America, the PCUSA, have recently unanimously encouraged their church to refer to the triune God, not as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but as Mother, Child, and Holy Womb. We see this taking place all around at an increasingly greater rate. And so my question for us this morning as we consider God's word is, does it matter if we call God our father or our mother? Why are are Christians so caught up, so opinionated about this gender issue? I mean, if there are two people who happen by by chance to be of the same sex and they would like to, to make vows to one another and live in faithfulness to one another, why is it that the church cares? Why do we speak up against that? Why, why, why shouldn't we let people decide? Does God have anything to say about this? Well, I believe he does. And so today, I know we were working through Genesis, but in light of the Supreme Court... Ruling, I thought we would stop today and consider what the Bible has to say about gender. In our study of Genesis, it just jumped out to me in verse 27, and I thought perhaps it would do us well to consider this. It's Father's Day. And so, you know, this could be a Father's Day somewhere. And we're going to talk about what it means to be a man, which I think is a lot of fun. Um, not just talking about it, but being one. Um, we'll also talk about what it means to be a woman, which is an area I will tread very carefully. And uh, be rather brief, as you see in a moment. I'd like to suggest to you a biblical worldview on gender. First of all, I'd suggest to you that God made genders equal. Secondly, I would suggest to you that God made genders different. And thirdly, I would suggest to you that God opposes gender distortions. So number one, God made genders equal. Notice our text here in verse 26 of Genesis 1. When the scripture says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see this repeated again in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so the Bible wants to labor at this point that that man is unique. Now, we've been studying through Genesis 1, and we've seen that that the other acts of creation have been created according to their... Remember the word? It was their kind. Remember that? We saw that over and over again. In fact, in verse 24, we considered this last week, and God said, let us bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. But now he gets to man, and man is not told, or at least not told that man is created according to his kind but rather created according to God's kind. Right? Of course, when we have children, they're, they're like us. So we, baby Eden, when my mother-in-law called when baby Eden was born and wanted to know what she looked like. I said, she looks like a carn. She's got her daddy's eyes and her, and her mama's nose, her daddy's hairline. Right? She looks like one of ours. Um, but she's according to God's kind. She's more than that. She is like God. She is made in the likeness of God. So frogs make frogs and dogs make dogs and God makes people. 
We are made, Scripture tells us, unique. There is no other animal like this. We're not just simply some more evolved animal or some higher order animal or some superior animal. We are totally different. We are made in the image of God. And we will, if God is willing, flesh that out more next time. But I want, I want you to understand from being in God's image means that you and everyone has value and dignity and worth. Why is it that we value human life above all other life? Well, simply, Scripture tells us, because it has been made in God's image. You see, the world may value people based upon their abilities, may value them if they're athletic or good-looking or talented or rich. But Christianity comes along and says, no, we don't value people according to their abilities. We value according to not what they can do, but, but who they are. And they are created in God's image. And so you, friend, have value and dignity and worth simply because you are made like God. In fact, if you look over in Genesis chapter 9, we see this very clear. This is where God institutes capital punishment. For those who murder, God says, they shall be executed. But he not only tells us that, he tells us why. Look in verse 6 of Genesis 9. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So if you murder someone, you are to be executed. Why? Well, look what he says. For God made man in his own image. You see, this God's way of valuing the life that was taken. God is, in a sense, saying, I take human life so seriously that if you murder someone, you forfeit your own life in order to uphold the sacredness and the value of the life that was taken. To, to, to execute a murderer is to actually honor the one who was killed, who was, who was murdered. We also see this is why we don't curse people. James chapter 3 and verse 9, when speaking of the tongue, says, With it, with the tongue, that is, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Scripture says you're not to curse people. You're not to badmouth people because they're made in God's image, even if you disagree with them, even if it's a politician, right? Christians are not to badmouth and curse politicians, and everyone else, because believe it or not, politicians too are made in God's image. We all are made in God's image. So we value them not because we agree with them, not because we appreciate the laws in which they pass or the, the behavior in which they live, but because of who they are. We even protect them, even if we disagree with them. That's why we, we treat our criminals even with respect. We don't treat them like a mosquito or a mouse. We treat them with, with dignity because they are made in God's image. This is where we get our value. Well, who, according to Genesis 1, then, is made in God's image? You see this here in verse 27. God wants to make sure we don't miss it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then he wants to make sure we know what he means when he says man in this generic term. Is he just referring to males? Well, friends, look what he says. Male and female, he created them. So when God says man is created in his own image, what does he mean? He means both genders. This is even more clear in Genesis 5 and verse 1. The Bible says this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So man is made like God. Now note verse 2. What does God mean when he says man in this generic sense? Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man. So male and female who are named man are made like God. And so I simply suggest to you this morning, uh, and I'm afraid I, I have to suggest these things in light of the culture in which we live today, that gender is no accident. It is part of God's plan. And that both men and women share in God's image. Therefore, both men and women are equal in value, dignity, and worth. The Bible wants to belabor this point home. Because throughout our world, there are all sorts of class decision, uh, divisions and ways we separate ourselves from other people. We have these groups that think they're better than those groups over there. And it may be based on gender, maybe based upon ethnicity, maybe based on class. When the Bible comes along rather provocatively in Galatians chapter 3 and says, No, no, no. There is no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, everyone has equal value in the Lord. And now this is important to affirm. It's important to affirm that women have equal value as men because of the world in which we live. 
you just turn on the news and you look around this world and you see how women are treated. They are, they are told to stay away. They are told to cover up. They are defamed and demeaned. There are many cultures they are not let out of the house. And it's just not in the Muslim world, friends. It is, it is in India and it is in China. The two largest, most populated nations in the world that make up of a quarter of the world's population. For instance, according to the International Herald Tribune, an article entitled India's Lost Daughters. I quote, As many as 10 million female fetuses may have been aborted in India over the last 20 years as families try to secure a male heir. According to a study published by, in, published Monday in The Lancet, the British medical journal, in the two decades since the ultrasound equipment which allows prenatal determination of sex became widely available, the number of girls born in India has declined steeply. In China, where a one-child policy is strictly enforced, prenatal sex selection has resulted in an estimated 40 million bachelors. We conservatively estimate that prenatal sex determination and selective abortions accounts for a half a million missing girls yearly, Dr. Frabat Jha, a public health professor of the University of Toronto. The preference for sons has distorted the gender ratio throughout India. For every 100 boys born in India, there are 92 girls born. And can you imagine living in that culture? And women, you, the, the message you get is you are not as important as men. That's a quarter of the world's population. So let me be very clear. I just simply want to affirm that's which I probably don't need to affirm, but I'm going to do it anyways. If you are a woman in this building, you are as valuable to God as any man. I especially want you little girls to hear this. God values you. You have dignity, value, and worth, for you are made like God and in his image. In fact, we not only value across genders, Christians ought to value all life, whether it's born or unborn, whether it's young or whether it's old, whether it's mentally capable or mentally handicapped, whether it's black or white, whether it's American or French, whether it's Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Christian or male or female, they are all equally created in the image of God. They therefore equally have value and dignity and worth. And we ought to honor all people like him. Male and female have that honor equally. So God made genders equal, which is not to say that we are not different. Secondly, God made genders different. We are not the same. Men and women think differently. They feel differently. This is God's design. He did not make us the same. Many today, especially in our culture, want to claim there is no essential difference between men and women. I married a woman. She is different from me. I have four daughters. They are different. Girls have their own way of doing things. Many of them are very nurturing. My boys have their way of doing things. Usually in call, uh, uh, in includes destruction. <laughs> my girls, a little Magdalene, my three-year-old girl, will, will give tea to her stuffed animals. And my four-year-old son, Gideon, will run them through with a sword. Right? And I had nothing to do with it. Well, maybe a little bit. In fact, my Magdalene, she's already learned to flirt. She'll sit in Daddy's lap, and she'll bat her eyes and smile and cuddle up next to me as if she could get her way by doing that. And typically she can, as my wife tells me. Men and women are different. I think it, I, I just think that's obvious. Again, I, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say it. And yet I feel like it needs to be said. I believe that difference is an expression of the image of God in us. Do you realize that God is, is plural in himself? We believe in the Trinity. There is one God manifested in three different people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and I think gender actually tells us about God. It tells us that there can be equality and yet distinction. There can be plurality and yet unity. There can be different roles and at the same time equal value. I mean, we look at the Trinity, don't we? And we understand that all three persons of the Trinity are, are, are equal in value. They're equal in glory and majesty and power. And yet they're very different and distinct in the roles in which they have. The Son willingly submits to the Father. Not because he's God Jr. Not because he's some inferior deity. That is his role. 
The Trinity shows us that you can have different roles and yet at the same time have equality in value. It seems like our culture has a very difficult time affirming that, that roles can be predefined and yet you still consider them to be equal. Well, the Godhead actually shows us that to be true. And we're created in God's image, so I think we actually should expect us to be different in order to more accurately reflect the image of God. And so I like to consider these gender differences. I would like to affirm them. I, I think I think to deny these gender differences is to attack your humanity, is to attack what God has made for you. So let's affirm them. Let's rejoice in them. Men, let me tell you, on this Father's Day, you do not need to get in touch with your feminine side. Thank you. In fact, you probably ought not to have a feminine side. You ought to get in touch with your masculine side and just make sure your masculine side is biblical. And women, you ought to not get in touch with your masculine side. You ought to embrace femininity as long as it is biblical. And so let's consider, let's let's see these truths. That's not something to overcome, but something to rejoice in, in which God has made. I would suggest to you that biblical masculinity includes four things. It includes much more than these four things, but it includes not, not less than these four. It includes leading, honoring, protecting, and providing. Leading, honoring, protecting, and providing. I believe men are given a responsibility to lead, especially in their home and in the church. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That is not your right, men. That is not your prerogative. That is a gracious trust given to you by your creator. Something to be cherished and esteemed. Later on in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, Children, obey your parents. Three verses later, it says, Fathers, bring them up in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. Now, I believe both parents have a role in disciplining the children. But I believe there is a special and unique responsibility for the moral life of the home, for the discipleship in the home that is given to the father. We see this in the very first family. Look in chapter um, Genesis chapter 3. We see this, I think, with Adam and Eve. Of course, in chapter 2, God creates Adam, and then he creates a garden and puts Adam in the garden, and then he goes on and gives Adam some instructions. He says, okay, Adam, in this garden, I want you to work the land. I want you to keep it. And by the way, there's a bunch of trees here. You could eat of any tree, but there is a special tree, and if you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Now, God does not share that information with Eve. So there is a poison tree, if you will, in the garden, and if, if Eve eats of it, she's going to die, but God doesn't bother to tell her that. Well, I think the implication is that Adam, as the leader of the home, is to take God's word and to give it to his wife. And well, of course, we know that they failed miserably. And so they went in hiding. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, God shows up. Notice who he is looking for. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, friends, it was Eve who sinned first. And yet when God shows up and when the dysfunction happens in the home, who's he looking for? Well, he's looking for the man. He wants Adam as the head of the home to give an account for his family. Now, certainly Eve has some responsibility as we see in a moment, but the man has this unique and primary responsibility. I think of men in their homes as captain, uh, captains of their own ship. If the ship runs aground, even if they're not steering the ship, It may not be their fault, but it is their responsibility. This is their home. I am the president of the car nation. The buck stops with me. I lead my home as God has told me to. Men ought to lead our home. And I believe if the family messes up, if my family goes astray, God is going to come knocking on my door. And when my children open the door, he's going to say, is your father home? And my wife opens the door, he's going to say, may I speak to the man of the house? I believe that is my role. I believe God has called me to lead my home. I believe he's called all you men to do likewise. And so how are you leading? What a glorious responsibility. What a great trust God has given us. Oh, may we lead well. We also see, I believe, Scripture teaches us that masculinity and includes a responsibility to honor. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. 
You see, manhood has nothing to do with being a dictator or patronizing or condescending. Manhood even doesn't have anything to do with seeking your own honor. Many people think leadership means you get to be honored. That's not leadership. Leadership is leading. And we see here that, that the man is not to, to seek his own honor, but he's to honor his wife. She's to be honored. The weaker vessel is to be honored. And we have all sorts of truths already built into our culture, which I think we ought to esteem and try to preserve as best we can. Who seats who? Who extends the hand of greeting to who? Who opens the door? Who walks through a crowd first? Who walks on the, the street side of the sidewalk? Well, it's the men. As we honor our wives. And I think we rightly should. Masculinity also includes providing. I think this is clear again in Genesis chapter 3. And God shows up and Adam and Eve have sinned and God begins to curse them. You notice the areas in which God curses them is their spheres of, their natural spheres of work. It touches their natural place in life. Look at verse 16 of Genesis 3. The Bible says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Well, you notice the areas in which God curses. The, the woman, the, her life is impacted in, in childbearing and, and child raising. The man's life is impacted in this, this breadwinning labor. It's now going to be difficult for him. Now, both those things are, are, are essential for life. We, we need both of them. But I think God is targeting the specific areas in which he intends for us to occupy that, that women often give that nurturing to the children and, and bringing up the family. And men are, are focused on providing for the family. Now, this is be very clear. I am not saying in any way that women cannot work, that women cannot bring in an income. We see, that in fact, in Scripture that women are often giving labor to, provide, to help provide for the family. We see that very clearly in Proverbs 31. But what I am saying is that though women contribute to, may contribute to the needs of the family, the man should feel the, essential, the, the, the primary responsibility to make sure the family has what it needs. If there's not bread on the table, the man ought to feel his masculinity challenged. He ought to feel, this is my job to make sure my family has what it needs. It is my job to make sure that my family has what is provided for it. Well, let me lastly suggest that being a man means you have a responsibility to protect. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Jesus gives himself up for his bride to protect her from sin. To protect her from hell. We, we sang it just a little while ago that he has conquered sin and the grave and hell. This is what Christ has done. He protected us. I think husbands are to, to image bear Christ well when we protect our families. And again, I think this is simply natural. If you and your wife are walking arm to arm down a, a, a alleyway one night and an assailant comes out with his face covered and a, and a gun in his hand, what do you do, men? Well, you stand in front of your wife, do you not? You get in between this man and your wife and your family, and it's not because you're tougher than she is. It may be the opposite. It's not because you're more courageous. You do it because you're a man, and this is what God has put in you. And she's a woman, and she is right to receive that protection. She's not considered cowardly for hiding behind her husband, for seeking shelter under his protection. But the man rightly would if he ran away, if he ducked behind his wife. I certainly hope you don't think uh, when you're sleeping with, in bed in, at night with your wife and you hear a bump in the middle of the night, you don't turn to her and say, it's your turn, honey. Huh? Go check it out. No, men are supposed to protect. I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise. But the first day on the cruise, you, you get your life jacket on, you go to your little dinghy where you're, where you're going to get into in case the ship goes down. But they are, you are told very specifically, listen, women and children first. Well, is that because women are not as good swimmers as men? Well, I don't think so. I think it's because there's something in us. It's masculine to accept danger to protect others. I try to drill this home in my children over and over again. 
that my children are to protect girls. That my children, uh, my boys, they hurt each other. They will be disciplined by their father. But when they hurt their sisters, there's a unique kind of discipline that daddy gives. When they hurt their mother, there is a unique discipline that they get. Because I want them to understand boys protect girls. This is why you have brothers. Tear into them, right? Wrestle, fight all you want. You don't fight with girls. You protect them. I want them to understand what it means to be a man. The Bible says that God is the protector of an orphan and the widow. We ought to bear God's image well. We ought to be men and protect women and our children. You see, masculinity, I believe, is a call to lead and not to dictate. It's a call to honor and not demean. It's a call to provide for and not to take from. It's a call to protect and not to harm. There seems to be a distorted masculinity in our day. I see it on the television all the time. Somehow we've defined masculinity in our culture as having a motorcycle or a fast car and being free from any kind of responsibility or any duty. Friends, that's not masculinity. That's adolescence. That's called being a child. That's what my children have. No responsibility. Freedom from any major obligation. But men ought not to live that way. And you think about the men in Scripture that you admire. You think about Abraham who led. And you think about Boaz who provided. And you, you think about Moses who, who honored his people. You think about David who protected. You think about Paul who sacrificed. One pastor said men ought to lead in such a way that our wives and children find independence, a burden, and submission, a joy. James Dobson put it this way. A Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then the financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or suddenly goes to church on Sunday, God holds the man to blame. If children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. In my view, he says, America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their family rather than pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. I would say amen. I believe that being a man means to lead, to honor, to protect, and provide. Unfortunately, our time is running short, or maybe fortunately, so I will be brief when it comes to biblical femininity. I would say that uh, to be biblically feminine includes much more than what I'm going to just say two quick things. I believe one, one aspect of biblical femininity is you have a disposition to receive. And what I mean by that is that your femininity is well expressed when you are happy and willing to receive the leadership and the honoring and the protection and the provision of the worthy men in your life. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. You see, a, a, a biblically feminine woman doesn't want to reverse these rules. Doesn't want to usurp her husband's leadership. In fact, she, she feels glad when her husband is not passive. And in my 15 years of pastoral ministry and the counseling that I have done, I'll tell you, it is rare when I hear a woman say, I wish my husband would stop leading. I wish my husband would stop guiding our family. I'll tell you, uh, almost the majority, probably the majority, it's always, I wish my husband was leading us. I wish he was doing it biblically. I think there's a disposition to receive. She feels honored and secure when her husband leads well. Secondly, I would say that there is a disposition, disposition to nurture. It's not simply that, uh, that being feminine means receiving from men. It's not simply passive. God has given women strength and insight and wisdom and great skills and abilities, and they ought to use that to nurture and strengthen their husband's ministry in their life. They ought to take the insight and the wisdom they have and, and, and do what they can to encourage their husband to step up to the plate and do what God has called him to do. It's not simply just receiving, but it is helping. You are to be a helpmate to your husband and assist him in that leadership. 
I, I also think that, that this femininity is expressed differently with different men. I just want to be very clear on this. That my wife, according to 1 Peter 3, is subject to me. Which means she is not subject to other men. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3, wives be subject to your own husbands. And so there she's protected from other men by, by her relationship with me. And so femininity, I believe, is expressed differently when it comes to different men. And I think that's important to affirm. And so let me just say that biblical femininity, I believe, is this receiving or this disposition to receive and a disposition to nurture. Well, let me last say my third point this morning. God opposes gender distortions. This is where we started. That gender distortions are on the rise. Sex is now happily in our culture separated from marriage. Divorce is now shameless. Couples now, uh, children, excuse me, are now often not born within a, with, to, to a married couple. Marriage is being redefined. Though this is increasing in our culture, I don't think it's entirely unique. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, there's all sorts of gender issues taking place. He says, these people are not my people. The reason why is that they have rejected God's plan for them. God's plan for them is not to live this way, and they reject it. And in rejecting God's plan, they reject God. God has given us a plan for the home, for genders, because he's good. He wants our good. And today we have this idea, the argument that we're besieged with is that all these alternative lifestyles are just simply their way to pursue their happiness. Right? And, and, and this is what we're told. Don't, well, why are we telling these people who love each other they can't be wed when they want, when this is what's going to make them happy? Well, I think there's a, a, a number of ways to respond to that biblically. Uh, we can't get into them all. I, well, one, I would say that God's primary goal in your life is not to make you happy. It's to make you obedient. And in your obedience, you will be happy. Um, but I would suggest to you that these distortions of gender do not lead to happiness. Although we're told otherwise, the facts, I believe, bear another story. So let's take homosexuality for a moment. I recently read of, the st- um, of an individual who collected statistics from 200 academic journals. The authors, all of which are in favor of endorsing homosexuality as an appropriate alternative lifestyle. He collected these, these articles, these 200 statistics, and he said, imagine 10 homosexual men in their mid-30s. Four of those 10 are in a monogamous relationship, but only one is faithful. He will not be within a year. Four have never had a relationship last more than one year. Only one has a relationship last more than three years. Six are having sex regularly with strangers. One is a sadomasochist. One prefers minors. Three are currently alcoholics. Five have a history of alcohol abuse. Four, a history of drug abuse. Five regularly use at least one illegal drug. Three are multiple drug users. Four have a history of acute depression. Three have seriously contaminated suicide. Two have attempted suicide. Eight, have a history of sexually transmitted diseases. Eight, currently carry infectious pathogens. Three, currently suffer from urinary or digestive ailments caused by these pathogens. Three, are HIV infected. One has AIDS. And so our culture presents this picture as this perfectly normal, perfectly happy alternative lifestyle. And that to consider homosexuality as sinful is to be bigoted, is to be wrongheaded, is to deny people their happiness. I simply would suggest to you otherwise. That abandoning God's plan in any way does not bring lasting happiness. And I believe to promote this behavior as legitimate is not an act of love, but it's actually of hate to those who would actually embrace it. The the, the argument in favor of homosexuality is as old as sin. God cannot be good and still keep from you what you want. I mean, did you not hear that in Genesis chapter 2? Well, if God is good, why won't he let you eat of this? 
And this is, this is the argument that we are besieged with. These people just want to, they love each other. They want to pursue their happiness. Well, God must not be good if he says you can't pursue happiness as you define it. But I would suggest to you that the opposite is true. God is good and therefore he does deny us our desires because our desires are often bad. I see this in my home all the time. I constantly deny my children desires. If they had their way, they would watch G.I. Joe the entire day long. Their desires are not always healthy for them. And it seems like, like we're going out and we want to play in the street. And, and, and I just want to go over and play the street. That's where I'm going to be happy. And God says, no, wait a second. I made for you this yard. It's beautiful. You can do whatever you want in the yard. You, you could dig it up. You could throw sticks. You could have fun. Just look at this yard I created for you. And we say, no, I want to go in the street. I want to go in the street. That's where I want to play. And somehow it's become the hateful act to say you ought not to be in the street. You ought to play in the yard. Friends, I don't think that's hateful at all. I think that's the most loving thing that we can, stand up for truth in a way that is compassionate and gracious. Choosing sin never leads to freedom. It leads to pain and suffering. I believe we live in a land of great spiritual battle. I don't know if you believe that. I believe our enemy is on a roll. I believe he is winning all over the place. I believe our culture is headed in the wrong direction. And I don't know if it's going to stop. But I know what I'm called to do. I know what you're called to do, Christian. And you're called, men, to live like a biblical man. To lead and honor and protect and provide for your wives and your children. We're also called to be people who embrace truth. And who are willing to lovingly correct those who are going to reject it. Even if it brings on their own suffering. But let me say this lastly that we ought to embrace truth and we ought to speak up for truth, not because we are concerned about our country. And this may be provocative, but you and I are not to stand up in favor of the sanctity of marriage because we're concerned about what they are doing with our land. We're to do so because we love them. They are our neighbors. And when I read scripture, it says, I am to love my neighbor. They are not my enemy. They are the mission field. And you and I ought to stand up for truth in a, in a way that does not pit them against us. But that they understand just like they understood Jesus. This man, though he may disagree with me, loves me. You and I are called to be his image bearers. We are to act like him. I pray that we would do so faithfully. Friends, those who embrace these alternative lifestyles are not our opponents. In fact, the gospel is for those who fail in gender issues, isn't it? There's a redeemer. He buys people back from sin. Do you know that Jesus Christ came to this earth because we sinned, because we failed? And, and, and like our neighbors are failing today, and he came and he lived a perfect life because we could not. Because we, like the world, were wretches as we sing of the amazing grace that saved wretches like us. And he lived that perfect life and died upon a cross. And there on that cross, he received all the punishment for my sin and for your sin. That which would have taken me an eternity to bear, Christ received it in but hours. There in his agony. And he did that for you, and he did that for those in this world. And three days later, he kicked open that, that grave and walked out of that tomb, for he had victory over death as God the Father showed, I receive this payment for your sin. I'll tell you this morning, if you are here and you are not a Christian, though I may have said many things that perhaps hit you the wrong way, I did it because I simply love you and love God. It's not because I hate you. It's because I want what's best for you. And I'll tell you this morning, what is best for you, your eternal good, is to bow your knee to your maker, King Jesus, who will receive you with great love and give you forgiveness and adoption into his family. You will become heirs of God and co-heirs for Christ forever if you will just simply turn from your rebellious sin with repentance in your heart, calling out to Jesus for forgiveness. I can think of no better news. That's the God that we worship, a God full of grace, willing to receive those who would bow their knee. This is a God that continues to redeem. May he do that work of redemption in our land. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time this morning to consider your word. 
We feel, I believe, it's somewhat of a shame that we even have to uh, go over these issues. But this is the land in which we live. I pray that you would help your people represent you well. I think, Father, we are often resemble the Pharisees more than we do Christ. And we who think we have our acts together and do everything that's good and look down our nose at those who do not. And Christ has shown us a different way, Father. He has shown us that he has come for sinful people. He has come for those who would reject your plan in any sort of way. Will you help your church to be like Jesus? Will we stand for truth in such a way that does not alienate people, but at least communicates that we love them? Will we not yell at people and scream and call people names, for they too are created in your image. They have dignity and value and worth. Help us. Help your people. I pray for my friend here this morning. I pray that if he or she has yet to bow her or his knee to Jesus, that you would give her faith to do so. That you would change their life forever. Father, we pray for our Supreme Court who will rule uh, this week on a very important issue. We ask that you give them good wisdom. We ask that they would base their decision not on the fad of the last decade, but upon timeless truth that culture after culture has received and embraced that your word clearly proclaims. If they do not, will you help us um, to live wisely in this land that continually rejects what you have called for us to do? We love you, Father. We thank you for King Jesus. I love you, Jesus. We thank you that you have given us amazing grace, that while we were wretches, while we ran away, that you came for us with great love. Help us to follow you this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.